Have you noticed anything different about your office this week? I know I just got your attention. Uh, that was cool. Awesome. I love when you surprise me because I thought we were going to talk about Amazon and cars are, right off are, the bat. We are. Um, I've noticed that the thermostat has been nope, adjusted nope, in this nope. and it's boiling hot on one I, half of the, of the no, office. That's here. not it. I, okay. I love the fact that you haven't noticed it. I am so out of tune on what happens in the office. I come in but and it's I shut my But it's your office specifically. I made a change for the better. Gosh, can I get up and go run in there and take a quick look and see if sure, I figure it we'll, out? We'll, take sure. a quick pause. Okay, yes. We'll, right. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll edit this and go. come back. Do you know what it is? Okay, I'm back. Yeah. I do not know what it is. All right. I've looked all your, around. John, I your, really have no your idea. Your door and your chair have been driving oh, me nuts yes. for the past year. They have been so squeaky. Yeah, they're very squeaky. I WD-40'd your damn Thank door you. and your chair for you. Look, you. look at how I look out for you. But honestly, it was mostly my own sanity <laughs> that I was looking out for. It has been bad. <laughs> all hey, right. Thanks Riv- for fixing that. Riveting podcast yes. content here. All yes. right. Now on to the What's real the show. What's the tech element in that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Hello and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories in the news. Coming up, the state of the Seattle startup industry as viewed through its flock of unicorns. Flock, right? Flock. I think they fly. (laughs) We'll see. But first, John, I have been covering one of the craziest stories that I've ever covered. And I think it's possibly one of the craziest stories that ever's happened in the tech industry. Sam Altman's abrupt dismissal, the reaction, the triumphant return to open AI saying it, it almost feels kind of biblical <laughs> in some ways, you know, and I've been thinking about it here from the perspective of Microsoft and the reaction to what Microsoft did. And I'm of two minds on this. I don't know how much you've been following this particular angle. Well, that's the angle I've been paying the most attention to. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts? There is a school of thought, and I agree with this to some extent, that Satya Nadella handled this perfectly, that as soon as they found out that Sam Altman was being dismissed, which was minutes before the rest of the world, they jumped into action. They put out a statement. Satya Nadella, from what I understand, was the mediator over the weekend with OpenAI's board and Sam Altman trying to get him reinstated. Then that Sunday night, he pulled what in hindsight, appears to be a really brilliant move of announcing that Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, the ousted CEO and ousted chairman and president, were going to be joining Microsoft to lead this new advanced AI research lab. Microsoft's stock stabilized on Monday morning. I mean, everything that happened, it was a masterclass in playing defense in a lot of ways. It was a brilliant reaction. Anyway, this turned out, Microsoft was going to be okay. However, the fact that Microsoft was in this situation in the first place really strikes me in hindsight as not a fatal flaw, but just a fundamental error on the company's part and a lack of understanding of how this could go haywire. And the fact that you've got this nonprofit board overseeing this capped profit company 
And the fact that Microsoft, despite having reportedly a 49% stake in the capped profit company, didn't have a seat on the board to begin with, speaks to me to just how desperate Microsoft must have been to establish some kind of relationship with OpenAI in the first place, and then to maintain that relationship going forward under the same structure. On the one hand, I want to sit back in awe at the way they played it out over the past week, but also really question the situation that they had themselves in in the first place that got themselves to the place that they had to play defense. I agree with that assessment. Uh, but didn't Microsoft negotiate as part of the terms of that initial investment that a certain percentage of the investment was tied up in Azure credits? That is part so, of the deal, yes. So they had a certain amount of leverage there. So it wasn't like they got nothing out of the deal. Absolutely. And the relationship that they have with OpenAI clearly has benefited Microsoft's products in fundamental ways. That doesn't negate the fact that Microsoft was in this super weird situation due to OpenAI's convoluted and just crazy corporate structure. Yeah. Well, I think that's OpenAI had a convoluted structure and Microsoft was trying to play ball with them and they got stuck in a bad situation. Now, it seems like it's turned out pretty well for them at the end of the day, don't you think? Yes. As of midweek, as we're recording this, though, there's no guarantee, at least publicly, that Microsoft is going to have a board seat in this newly reformulated board. That was surprising to me. Yes. I, was, I thought when they were restructuring, there would be a Microsoft person on the board. Yes. And to some extent, it's been great that this has played out so publicly. In a lot of ways, this is the journalist's dream that these kinds of negotiations don't just happen behind closed doors, even when they do, that people are leaking information. Sam Altman is tweeting a picture of himself with a guest pass and saying, never again after today. You know, like that kind of thing was great to see. But it also created this whiplash throughout the week where things that were stated as truth by these companies and presented as fact, were really just interim steps along the way to the ultimate outcome. As an example, when you had Satya Nadella announcing that Greg Brockman and Sam Altman were going to be joining Microsoft and starting this new division, I mean, in any other situation, that is significant, permanent news. And in this case, it lasted two days. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wouldn't Microsoft have been better off if they absorbed Sam Altman and Brockman, and just brought over 700 OpenAI employees and said, okay, enough with OpenAI. And as I understand, they also own, they don't own, but they have access to all the source code for OpenAI. So they have, that's part of the terms of the deal too. So you could imagine that they could get OpenAI, not at the $90 billion valuation or what have you, but far, far less. For essentially the price of the investment they've made so far, which is reported to be more than $10 billion. But as you said, there's some element of Azure credits involved in all of that. Satya Nadella, whenever he's asked about the investment Microsoft has made, just says it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so to your well, point. And I guess this is what I respect about how Satya played it. He kind of had to play both sides of the fence on it. And I think he played it pretty well. And they, I don't think they're in a bad situation uh, as this has played out. I think they could have been in a better situation, but it's probably smart to let it play out the way it's played out. I guess he could have been more aggressive and just said, we're sticking with Sam. We are welcoming all of the OpenAI employees 
and torching this relationship that he's like thirteen billion dollars into. Kind of the screw you approach to a the bit. open AI and board. like they could afford to sink, let that thirteen billion dollars evaporate and spend fifty billion dollars on this new thing that they're doing that they get to control. The thing about that is the person who was ultimately in control of this entire situation as it played out was Sam Altman. And I think... Well, he wasn't at first. He got fired. Well, he was in control even when he got fired. If you saw the reaction, the board thought it was in control, but ultimately the loyalty that Sam Altman had generated among that employee base was just off the charts. It was some, something like 95% of the more than 700 employees signed the petition. Including one of the board members who <laughs> voted to oust That him. was the weirdest thing. Yeah. That was the weirdest thing. Ilya Setskiver, who was on the OpenAI board, the chief scientist who was instrumental in the ousting of the two, basically saying he was wrong. And then at any rate, that's a whole weird subplot. As we're talking about how Sam Altman was ultimately in control. I mean, this is a startup guy. And... I wonder what would have happened. I agree with you that the ultimate best outcome here would have been for Microsoft to have actually hired Greg Brockman and Sam Altman to lead this new version of OpenAI inside Microsoft. I think in theoretical terms, that would have been great. However, how would that have actually played out? Um, I think Microsoft would have created a lot of resentment among its existing employee base. They're supposed to be in a hiring freeze right now, and yet... In this case, they carved out an exception for about 700 employees. What does that say to the people, contractors, for example, who might want to be hired on as full-time Microsoft employees, blue badges, effectively, or the existing employee base that may not be getting the same kind of resources that this new group might get? I think there was, especially because of the way it was so hastily arranged, tons and tons of pitfalls on the road to that admittedly much better ideal of Microsoft having its own research group inside. Do you think there's an opening with all of this drama that's played out over the last few days for other companies like Google and Amazon to insert themselves and really position themselves as a maybe not the dominant player in AI? Because I think Microsoft, with its relationship with OpenAI, is the front runner right now. But does this chip away at Microsoft's supposed lead. I think there's an analogy here to companies becoming over-dependent on AWS in the cloud and then the push over the past few years for enterprise customers in particular to work with a variety of cloud vendors. I think that in the realm of AI, similarly, to the extent that companies and customers were putting the majority or all of their workloads into Microsoft or into OpenAI, this kind of craziness has to make them rethink that and think, hey, at the very least, we need to hedge our bets and be on multiple AI platforms as we're developing different things, or at least within our employee and engineer base, have the expertise to switch from OpenAI to Anthropic or AWS and Google Cloud and their multiple different AI offerings. I think it opens the door to competitors in that way. I don't think it creates a situation where people switch wholesale away from Microsoft and OpenAI, but it certainly creates a little bit of a crack in the door. Bottom line, crazy, crazy few days here in the tech industry. I got to tell you my victory in all of this, John. I went down to OpenAI Dev Day 
a couple weeks ago in San Francisco. I happened to be in town. Honestly, I was kind of wondering whether it was worth my time. But not only did I get to ask a question of Sam Altman and Mira Marathi that made some headlines in the press conference, but from a journalist's perspective, I got every possible photo that I needed of Sam Altman and Satya Nadella to carry us through seven days of crazy coverage, you know, of this story. And I know that's kind of a small thing, but it actually matters to be able to have a nice library of photographs to use when a story like this comes out. Nice work. Nice work. What was your question that got the press corps talking? I asked them what they learned so far from the voice interaction with ChatGPT on a handheld phone. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking of that in part because it's competitive with Amazon Alexa, which is obviously another big company that we cover here. And that led to actually a follow-up question from another reporter, Ina Freed from Axios, in which Sam Altman acknowledged that OpenAI might actually come out with its own device someday. And frankly, I was thinking about that in the back of my mind this week as this was coming out, because one of the things that the board was concerned about reportedly was some of the announcements and some of the statements that were made. So you caused this. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think <laughs> you so. You were the one who sparked this whole thing. Uh, yes, let's just go with that. <laughs> I think that the GPTs that they showed and the enterprise strategy that they've been talking about where OpenAI, the capped profit company, starts to act a lot more like a really profit-motivated entity added up to all of this issue and caused the rift with the board. And Sam Altman's candor about their device plans probably contributed a little bit to that. So what is OpenAI going forward? Is it a nonprofit that's going to roll out these technologies in a a safe manner? Or is it a for-profit business, essentially, with a new board, with Sam Altman back, with the partnership with Microsoft? I think it's most likely going to maintain the same structure, perhaps with a little bit more simplicity. The nonprofit board, which is geared toward bringing about artificial general intelligence for the good of humanity, running this for-profit company, capped profit company. But I think within that structure, the for-profit, capped profit company will have more sway now, and at least will be heard And at the very least, I think Microsoft will have more visibility into what's going on, if not a direct say into how OpenAI is governed. And I think that ultimately is the most meaningful outcome of all of this, frankly, is a shift in the balance of power, not away from the nonprofit side, but certainly more toward the for-profit side, giving them more weight in the decisions that are made inside this complex entity. All right, we've got a lot more to talk about on this week's episode. We will be back with a discussion of Amazon's venture into auto sales. That's coming up next. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Amazon announced the deal with Hyundai, the car maker, where 
for the first time, people are going to be able to buy cars on Amazon. They launched it with- The everything store. (laughs) Exactly. truly is the everything (laughs) store. They launched it with a video with a car inside a big Amazon box. Obviously, that's not how it's going to be delivered. But, or, or is it? <laughs> this is interesting to me in part because... Maybe by drone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, that would be a hell of a drone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is part of a larger deal where Amazon is also inking a cloud contract with Hyundai and then putting Alexa into Hyundai vehicles starting in 2025, which indicates the still crazy cycles that these automakers work on in terms of their own technology development. I kind of like this idea, though. I think this gets back to the basics of what Amazon should be doing, thinking about how to improve the consumer experience, not stuff like, and I'm sorry, Project Kuiper, but not like big satellites in space trying, trying to replicate what Elon Musk has done with Starlink. It feels like a certain element of Amazon has gotten into a bit of a follower approach. Now, I know they're customer-minded, customer-obsessed, not competitor-focused, but when you look at what they've actually been doing, it seems like they've been going astray. And this type of thing to me, whether or not you want to buy a car on Amazon, is interesting because it's like trying new stuff with their core business, and for that reason, I like it. I think that's a really interesting thought, Todd, because they have strayed into so many other things and you forget what they do the best, which is low margin retail. Sell stuff. And sell stuff. (laughs) And it is, now that you mentioned this, what struck me was that Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, tweeted about this. Like, I was like, eh, big deal. They're selling cars. It's on their site. They sell a lot of things. But the fact that he's making a point of putting his muscle behind this new initiative, I do wonder if this is an example of more to come, that they're going to double down on what they have historically done, which is just sell stuff to people. So interesting thought. I think this is a thing to watch. If we see more creative partnerships and innovations on the retail component of their business. E-commerce specifically. E-commerce. That's what they did. I mean, as they started with books, right? People forget that. In, and and it's the other thing that's telling here, look what happened to a lot of the car dealer stocks and car makers that weren't part of this. They sent a shockwave through Wall Street with this announcement. Lithia Motors, which is a big auto seller, down 5% on the news. So they used to be able to do that a lot when they entered markets and really decimate other players in the e-commerce and retail arena. Now, there are also gray areas. Just as an example, Amazon recently added a discounted one medical membership to Prime. And you start to ask yourself, wait, is that retail? Is that e-commerce? Is that the consumer experience? kind of a blend. Yeah, I'd say that's a bit of a blend. I will say it did get my attention. In fact, I think that may be a GeekWire adventure, (laughs) at least their experience. (laughs) Get sick? (laughs) No. (laughs) To start using One Medical through Prime as a way of getting my primary care. I think I'm going to try that in the months going forward just to see what it's like how the experience differs from other kinds of virtual medical and in-person healthcare that I've gotten. And just to see how Amazon creates that cohesive experience with an acquisition. And the precedent here in some ways is Whole Foods. I know that's funny to talk about medical and grocery in the same sentence, but you've seen Amazon 
extend a lot of prime benefits or at least some prime benefits to Whole Foods in the same way that you're now seeing them incorporating One Medical into prime. Not exactly the same, but looking for ways to create a new prime benefit at the same time they boost this recent acquisition of Well, there are some parallels here between going to the doctor and going to the auto dealership to buy (laughs) your car. They're both very painful experiences, right? And consumers hate doing them. And so I think Amazon inserting themselves into these two very specific industries have some parallels. And I think that's one thing that you saw with this announcement is the local dealer is going to actually you have the possibility to have it delivered to your doorstep. That's I mean, the whole it's idea. not going to be in that giant box we were joking about, we don't think, but you can just have order it on Amazon and the car shows up at your doorstep. Pretty cool. The one question, and Taylor Soper and Kurt Schlosser on our team talked to an auto industry analyst who brought this up. The question is will people be willing to take a bet on these vehicles without test driving them first? Yes. And then what's the return policy? If they don't want it, I mean, you got 30 days. I don't know. That's not detailed, at least in what I've seen from Amazon well, yet. Here, here is my, I have talked to more people who have purchased homes sight unseen in the last five years than I can count on both hands. It's, it's becoming more commonplace. And if you're buying a home sight unseen, I think you can buy a car. A home has a lot more variables, I right. would say, than a, than a car. So uh, I think that will not discourage people. Certainly, this is targeted at a different demographic than probably people 50 or 60 or over. But for new buyers, it would take a lot of the pain out of the process, potentially. I was commenting earlier about Amazon just kind of following Elon Musk with Project Kuiper, following in the footsteps of Starlink. And actually, when you think about this new auto arrangement. That's another thing I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Is it a bit of a slap in the face and and Tesla and like, hey, we're going to compete against Elon and Tesla? Is it a slap in the face or is it a compliment? Hey, the direct-to-consumer model works. People are willing to just go to a Tesla showroom and then get their car later. I don't know. Maybe this is in some ways the next step in the evolution of car buying that was first started in many ways by Tesla. Yeah, well... As uh, the son of a person who owned an auto dealership uh, growing up, and do you remember the brands that my father sold? Okay. Because one of them was my first car. He sold uh, American Motors. American Motors. Yeah, we had Pacers. (laughs) We had Pacers. Yeah, my first car was an AMC Hornet. um, Handed down from my grandma. AMC (laughs) Jeep and Renault. Jeep. And and you know how they pronounce Renault in Ohio? Renault. Renault. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So yes, AMC Jeep and Renault. Uh, nice. <laughs> so having this disruption coming into the auto space is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I think it's a welcome change. I think you should. I hate buying cars too, oh, by the way. I, know. I, I don't like cars. I hate buying cars. I hate the whole process. My dad has gone car shopping with me in the past. And I think He's, I, I recall him saying it was one of the more stressful experiences he's ever had to do, deal with. Usually he has one Manhattan, a Manhattan <laughs> up with two cherries. After car shopping, he had to have two, with me, he had to have two Manhattans. <laughs> so that tells you how stressful I can be when buying a car. I think you should ask your dad what he thinks about this Amazon announcement. <laughs> I will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's another GeekWire experience. Yeah. 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 The, the retired auto dealer <laughs> ex- tries to buy an Amazon, tries to buy a car on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Don't think he'd want a Hyundai. <laughs> All right. Coming up, 
what's going on with our unicorns? This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our colleague Taylor Soper had a really interesting story. You and I have talked a little bit about this in the context of other startup news, funding news on the show. But our flock of unicorns is not growing and, in fact, maybe shrinking. Now, let's define this for folks who have no idea what we're talking about. Long ago, I think it was a journalist who came up with the phrase unicorn uh, or an analyst. Uh, I thought it was Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures, uh, who has spoken at the GeekWire Summit. She, she has. Let, um, let me fact check myself here. Yeah, real ask ChatGPT. Well, while you're doing <laughs> that, I can say that because of the tight venture capital market and in some cases valuations of billion-dollar startups, which is the definition of unicorns, going down – we have seen not only a lack of new unicorns, but the potential, based on some estimations, that some of the prior unicorns are, are no longer above the billion-dollar valuation mark. What's going on here, John? And actually, first, before we ask that question, you got an answer? Uh, Lee coined the often-used Silicon Valley term unicorn in a TechCrunch article. Uh, Welcome to the Unicorn Club, learning from billion-dollar startups. Uh, not seeing the year on it, so... It was a few years ago. A few years ago. Several few years, years ago. A few years ago. So, so the question as I was <laughs> fact-checking myself. So what is going on here? Because, well, there, because there was a time when we would be seeing a new unicorn seemingly every month. Yeah, that era is over. <laughs> the happening? era of free money is over. It's tough out there. It's tight. We've seen the layoffs hitting the tech ecosystem and companies under strict largely under strict orders from their board and venture capitalists to get their expenses in line and strive towards profitability. And the funding sources just aren't what they were two, three, four years ago. And a lot of these companies that raise money on these massive valuations are struggling right now and trying to get their expenses in line and grow those revenues. And it's a tougher climate. So not a surprise in the reporting here that we're seeing fewer and not a surprise in that some of the unicorns we saw formed in the last five years likely have valuations far below that $1 billion mark. When you look at the broader Seattle tech ecosystem, what does this mean? And especially when you think about talent and some of the people who've been laid off from larger companies in the past might have been able to find a soft landing at the likes of a convoy, which actually no longer exists, which is one example. Does this mean in general that the tech ecosystem isn't as vibrant or could we potentially see some of these people go off and make the next Zillow's and outreaches of their own in I, some ways? I think it's probably both. I mean, we're not as vibrant right now. There will be a crop of people who emerge from this period. It's often said that the best companies are started in very challenging times. Well, this is a very challenging time, certainly in the startup and venture market. And I think we'll see interesting companies form, and I think we're going to see 
people retreating to larger companies and looking at uh, some opportunities maybe even outside of traditional tech. So – but the, I think I've said this before on the show. This reset was needed because we went through a period of eight to ten years where the money spigots were just flowing and it seemed like an unending amount of capital going into these companies. And most of these companies shouldn't have been valued at a billion dollars or more. They they weren't um, generating anywhere near the revenue to justify that sort of valuation. So again, the venture capitalists got way ahead of themselves. There was a herd mentality. They tossed way too much money into the sector, and and now people are retreating a bit. I talked to one... Um, CEO of actually of a Seattle area unicorn company that was on the list and mentioned in T- Taylor's story, who interestingly on uh, in the discussion was noting that he was getting advice from some of his board and venture investors right now to go on offense, thinking there was a period here if you're if you're feeling that you're in a relatively strong position, uh, you could go use this time to get some of that talent that might have might be flowing out from some of these other companies. Uh, of course, you have to make sure that your expenses and your cash situation is strong enough to do that. But that was just interesting to hear because I've heard obviously the opposite of that more so than that advice, which is button things up and tighten things down and it could be a rough ride. But bigger picture too, I would say I've been talking to a lot of people in the startup community just asking them what's going on? What are they thinking about for 2024? And no one really knows. No one has any idea. I mean, there was some economic news which pointed to maybe things strengthening and the economy looking stronger going into 2024. But it is all over the map, whether I I hear from some people saying the layoffs are just starting and we're just starting to see the beginning of this, which that's a little scary, to other people like the CEO that I talked to said, we're kind of going on offense right now. We're feeling pretty good about what things look like. Some of this is obviously industry-specific. I've heard from uh, some service providers in the tech startup world who are saying things along the lines of there are certain industries that are struggling, you know, freight and logistics with, with the convoy situation, fintech. You know, there's some that are not performing very well. Obviously, you flip on to the some of the AI companies, which have had no problem raising money in, in recent months. So it's a little industry-specific. But I would say my overall take in talking to people in the startup community is that no one really knows what's going on or how it's going to play out into next year. And that just creates hesitancy in how people operate their businesses. How much of this in your experience covering startups and venture capital over the years comes down to just basic interest rates? If somebody can go out and get a guaranteed 5% return in a year versus taking the risk on a huge loss versus a giant gain. How much of it comes down to that? Are those different investors? Well, I, I would say it does play a role. What I would say, and we saw this happen when the bloom started coming off the rose in the public markets for, for tech companies, a lot of these venture capital firms are still sitting on a decent amount of money. Uh, that has been allocated to them. But what has happened is that the allocation that they have when these large pension funds provide the money to the venture capital firms, they're valued in the private market. The valuations aren't happening 
in real time necessarily. Not transparently. Not, not transparently. And so what happened is that the public market valuations came down in real time by these large entities that are providing money. And as a result, the percentage of venture capital in these groups was going up. And so what happened was there was an imbalance and a lot of these large money managers have a charter saying you can only have certain percentage allocated to venture capital. So it was it grew. Um, and so that creates a tightening when you go out to raise money because people say, eh, we're already over allocated in this sector. Even still with that, we've seen in the Seattle area several funds raise new money, you know. Um, yeah. Fuse Venture Partners raised a $250 million fund. That's a nice size fund. So I don't know. I think it's all over the map right now. I can't I can't sit here and say yeah. one thing is going to happen or the other. It's a time of uncertainty. And in a times of uncertainty, I think people just become more cautious. So we'll see. But it's a scary time to be running one of these companies. I certainly wouldn't want to have a billion dollar plus valuation hanging over my head in a industry sector that's struggling where it's hard to get new business and clients. I mean, that is a, I mean, we saw it play out with Convoy in a very stark terms, but I think a number of these companies are going through that sort of pain and trying to get things right-sized. Venture capital is such a blessing and a curse. You know, it is something that I was thinking about a lot Boaz Ashkenazi in the podcast Shift AI, which we featured on the site a couple weeks ago, talked with Rand Fishkin, the Moz founder who is now in charge of a company called Spark Toro. Rand had some fascinating things to say about the downsides of venture capital. And listening to you describe this, John, I'm sitting here thinking like, who would want to be a unicorn? Well, it's a different breed. And I think this is where, and I would say we're guilty of it at GeekWire. You know, we cover venture capital right. really closely and we cover which startups are getting venture capital in part because what we want to look for are the companies that are going to grow into the next Zillow or the next Amazon. And venture capital is typically the mechanism to get companies to to do that. Not always, but typically. And so I think that's why we spend maybe an outsized um outsized amount of time covering it. But frankly, it is so risky. I, and I say this, like, if you're an entrepreneur starting a business, venture capital is probably meant for probably less than 3% of the entrepreneurs. So that means there are 97 other entrepreneurs that probably don't need it or or shouldn't take it. You're just, talking about in an ideal world. Um, I'm just talking about who actually should be a venture-backed company and who should not. And in most cases, the answer is not. That said, there's a bit of a mythology around it, and you do need capital get, to get your business off the ground, typically. And um, it just comes with a lot of baggage. From comes a, with a lot of baggage. From a news coverage perspective, we wrestle with this. We've wrestled with it over the years in terms of playing into the biases of venture capital firms and the types of founders they pick in the nature of the companies they back. But the, the thing is, it comes down to this is a quantifiable measure of this company's value in the eyes of somebody who has purportedly given it a lot of thought and enough thought that they're willing to put their money into it. And that's the challenge we wrestle with. And I think that's a totally legit. I mean, personally, I think that's a people may disagree, but I think that's a legitimate way to look at things, especially if you're a business-oriented publication 
that is looking at which companies are going to have a, a larger impact on the rest of your economy. The problem becomes if you're relying solely on that as a measure of the companies that you cover as yeah, journalists, which we do not do. Although sometimes, especially during this period that you were talking about, this frothy period, there were so many deals happening. It was hard to keep up. It was it hard, was to, keep hard up, to keep up and it kind of took the oxygen out of the room, I think, for others who might have been running startups with smart ideas that didn't happen to get the funding. And there are times where it ebbs and flows like that. Well, if there's a bootstrapped yeah. startup out there with 30 million plus revenue in Seattle, that's that's a tech-oriented company. Email us. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. seriously, I would. I there's nothing I more than a, love more than a good bootstrap story of somebody who who doesn't take venture capital and does it essentially on their own and and figures out a marketplace and uses real revenue to grow their business. I mean, I that's that's a great story. We used to have an award in the GeekWire Awards. We did Bootstrapper called, of the Year. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think it reached the point where were you not getting enough there nominees? Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's it's rare, and it's it's. I mean, it's it's rare to do it and get it to s scale where it's a pretty large company. You know, a great example in our backyard here in the Seattle area is Tableau. Tableau raised very little venture capital. They, I think they raised fifteen million from NEA, but they never touched it. Like they didn't need the money. It was just a security blanket before they went public. And it was kind yeah. of a proof, proof point that they could raise money yeah, to I mean, the public Yeah, I think markets. Wall Street was like, you guys need someone else on your, you know, you need some cash on your balance sheet if you're going to go public. And But as I, as I recall, I don't think they ever really touched that money or didn't really need it. But so there are examples of companies that have really grown into large entities in the tech space without much backing. And um, again, yeah, those are cool stories. Seriously, anybody has that type of company or is on that growth path, send us information, tips at geekwire.com. Yep. And just a reminder, the entire news team gets that and everybody reads those emails that come into tips at geekwire.com. So it's a good way to just keep in touch with us. And on the flip side, if you're at a unicorn company that's now cutting back <laughs> and laying off people, which I would say... This is probably the the majority of the emails we're getting on the tip line right now. Send us emails to tips at geekwire.com. <laughs> anything well. you want us to know. Yes, yes, anything you want us to know, seriously. And of course, if you want to ever email John or me directly, it's just our first names at geekwire.com. Hey, thanks for joining us, everybody. Until next week, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on the GeekWire podcast.